Welcome, everybody, to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. I am your host, Jose, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen. Hi, everyone. And today we're speaking to sex work and policing scholar, doctoral student, Bradley Silverzon. Brad is currently a PhD student in sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. His research interests are in policing, the criminal justice system, harm reduction, and vulnerable populations, including people who use drugs and people who sell sex. Prior to starting his PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, Brad received his master's in sociology from West Virginia University and worked as a senior research program coordinator at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thanks for joining us, Brad. And so today we are going to have some general questions with Brad about sex work, and then we're going to get specifically into his paper on the Sapphire Project. All right, so let's start with some general questions. So as Jose mentioned, we're going to be talking about the Sapphire study that you are involved in or were involved in. Is it still going? Like a lot of analysis and paper writing right now, but the data collection is all over. Okay. So could you just describe to us, give an overview of what the Sapphire study is, kind of who you were looking at and what the goals of it were? Yeah. So a little bit of backstory. When I finished my master's at West Virginia, I got a job in Alaska actually to do research for their court system. Uh And I guess a lot of people go to Alaska and then realize that they hate it. So they leave. (laughs) So they were very adamant, like just saying like, we want this to be as useful for you as it is for us. Like we don't want to invest all this time in you and then have you leave. But I was super excited to go. But then I saw this job ad at Hopkins looking for someone to do field-based data collection, doing ride-alongs with the police. So it was in the public health school and I really had no background in public health whatsoever. I didn't really know anything about it. I was just randomly like Googling jobs in my hometown of Baltimore. But the job sounds so interesting. And when I was at community college before West Virginia, I actually did some ride-alongs with the Baltimore City Police. So I think because I had that experience, it kind of gave me like an up in the application process. And then they had already had someone in mind, but then luckily I emailed the PI and then I ended up getting the job. So I didn't go to Alaska. They gave me the job like a day before I was supposed to decide to go there. So my life would have turned out very differently, I think. But anyway, so yeah, so the project, it really had two phases. The first one was looking at the risk environment of female sex workers. So like continually, the police will get identified as a risk factor for female sex workers and a lot of times for people who use drugs as well. But no one had really looked at like police culture around policing sex work and like how the cops really approach sex work while they're policing. So we ended up doing, I want to say it was like 60 ride-alongs with the Baltimore City Police. We did it in three or four different jurisdictions that had a lot of street-based sex work going on. And then we did some with the vice squads who sometimes get involved with policing sex work. And then also did a whole lot of key informant interviews, talking with like the supervisors that really are in charge of the people who are are doing that. So that was the first phase. And that was kind of my plan was to just stay there, do that for like a year, and then apply to graduate school. But then the next phase sounded really interesting too. So I ended up just staying and then didn't leave for like four or five years. Um, But the second phase, and this is what the paper that I ended up writing with the people on my team about doing follow-up. The population, basically what we did was it was a year-long cohort study of 250 cisgender female sex workers 
And then I think we had about 50 trans female sex workers. So we recruited them using a mobile van. We went out to all of these different hotspots that we had identified through our work with the police. And then also we had a real awesome data analyst, Sean Allen, that looked at a lot of arrest data and calls for service to see what the specific hotspots were. And then we really dialed in like the top 15 hotspots. And then we would take the RV that we had and then drive it around. And then after we recruited people, we would do interviews every three months for a year. So it was an observational cohort in hopes of looking at just like general things across the year, but then also to specifically looking at the police experiences that they had and then what impacts that has on their health over the course of a year. So that's really the two arms of it. Yeah. That's cool. Were you involved in like doing the ride-alongs and doing the actual interviews with the sex Mm -hmm. workers and all that? Yeah. Yeah. I did a majority of the ride-alongs because I was like the main full-time hire to focus on that project. It was pretty interesting. Like the team that I'm on, I think other than like faculty members, I was the first full-time hire. And then now I think the PI that I was with, the team might have like 20 people on it. Like it's really, really grown. So I did a majority of the ride-alongs. I don't know if I ever led an interview with the key informants. And the key informants were usually like district commanders or supervisors of different units. But I was always there like taking notes and kind of like the second in command for that one. Yeah. And then for the interview stuff, yeah, I did more interviews between, I mean, because there was 300 something people in the study over the course of a year. So we did like over a thousand interviews and I did a good majority of them. Good experience. Uh, Yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah. So in your paper, you mentioned that this is a population that's hidden to researchers Uh and that this is a tough to reach population. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that is? Yeah, so I mean, like anything else, sex workers are not, monolithic. Like there's multiple different avenues that people do it. You have people like escorts or people doing more venue-based work in exotic dance clubs or maybe out of their house. But for this study, we really focused on street-based sex workers. So it was women that were primarily getting their clients off of the street. And through that, they would end up then like getting referrals from other sex workers or that. But like the main way that they got clients was on the street. And in Baltimore City, There's a big overlap with drug use, primarily injection drug use. So a lot of the women that we ended up recruiting into our study experienced like a whole lot of different structural vulnerabilities between homelessness, drug use, extreme poverty. So kind of all of those factors together really made them hard to follow up with over the course of a year. And then a lot of them too, through experience of arrest, like they might get incarcerated for a little bit, which then made it hard to find them as well. Yeah. So then kind of coming off of that question, how and why are sex workers policed? Because I'm assuming, you know, you're really interested in police as well. So these two research interests kind of tie in. For sure. Yeah. And I think like especially in the public health world, a lot of what I was exposed to just kept identifying the police as a structural risk factor for all of these different adverse health outcomes, whether it's overdose, HIV, STIs, experiences of violence, but no one had really looked at the culture around and like kind of why are the cops doing what they're doing? So that first phase of that study, which actually that paper finally got published, I think about a month after the methods paper that I submitted. So it recently just got published, but we really found at a structural level that there was two mechanisms that sex workers end up getting policed in Baltimore. 
And it was number one around like gentrifying areas. So like Baltimore, yeah, I haven't traveled too much. So maybe it's unique from other cities, but there's a lot of neighborhood, like there's some areas that are extremely wealthy and then some areas now that are really gentrifying. So Baltimore is like very block by block in terms of like how the neighborhoods are set up. And in the gentrifying areas, a lot of the way that the police got brought in to police them was through neighborhood complaints, actually. So like on the fringe of these gentrifying areas, people would be calling and then really trying to push sex workers out of that area. And then it was interesting that a lot of the cops, they didn't see what they were doing as problematic in that like, oh, we're just pushing them off of this block right here, getting them over to this neighborhood where the people don't complain as much. But the areas that sex workers choose, they choose them for a reason. They're areas that they know, they're areas that they feel safe in, they know the people nearby. So when they're getting pushed into these other areas, sometimes it can be like they'll be in back alleys instead or areas that have low lighting. So a lot of the like harm reduction tools that they use to keep themselves safe, like negotiating with clients or just kind of like spending more time getting a feel with the client before they get in the car, they can't really use a lot of those strategies because they're afraid of the police in the area. And then really the second avenue that we saw policing of sex workers happen was really around violent crime. So, I mean, Baltimore's definitely had a history of violent crime, but especially after the death of Freddie Gray, violence really spiked. I don't know the specific number off the top of my head, but I want to say it like almost doubled. Like it was, I think there was like a hundred something murders within a year. And then after that, it went above 300. And then it has almost like, I think it has stayed above. I haven't been like well-versed in this literature since this study, but I think it has stayed above 300 since then. So every community meeting that we would go to or the key informant interviews that we would do, violent crime would always get brought up all the time. It was like a huge concern for everyone. So the police would end up involving female sex workers in their fight in violent crime really to get information out of them. So if you talk to them, a lot of times they would say like, oh, we don't care about sex work. It's a victimless crime, or we don't go after the low level drug users. We're more concerned with the higher level people that are involved in the violence. But, and I think one of the officers that we rode with summed this up the best. He referred to the sex workers as the Google of the streets, that they have so much information. So they know who like, you know, who's involved in what and who the key players are. So they would end up arresting them really just to get information out of them, which is really problematic and creates like a pretty poor power dynamic that really does not give sex workers any power in the situation. And again, you know, the cops would kind of downplay it saying that, you know, we're more concerned with the bigger stuff, but not seeing that they're still involving them in all of it. Yeah. I mean, that's really detrimental to someone's life, you know, to get arrested really just for information. Exactly. Yeah. Then wouldn't you question the validity or the accuracy of that information? Yeah, they definitely would kind of pick out like who I guess they would call like a good informant and who would just be giving up like almost like fake information. I mean, I don't want to say that, but I guess they knew who they could rely on and who they couldn't. It was interesting. We would see a lot of times that they would pull up. I mean, they knew so much about these women's lives. They could tell you who their mother was, who their kids were, what happened to them the year before, because they're there every day. I mean, street-based sex work is a very visible thing. But, and like, and then they would come up and, you know, hey, how are you doing? But you could tell a lot of times, and again, this isn't all of them, like there definitely were some that genuinely cared, but 
a lot of times you could see that there was always this underlying power dynamic that even when they pulled up to talk to them, it was in a way to almost say like, I'm here, I see you, you know, like I know what's going on. And they might just say, stay off this street tonight. You know, I don't want to see you here for the rest of the night, but yeah. So not to sound too academic-y, but I mean, everyone always talks about the contribution of your work. And so why or what, you know, why is it important to understand these sex worker police interactions? I think part of it I hit on a little bit. And the last thing I said in that, I think a lot of people don't perceive the impact that even very minor policing can have on the agency of these women and their ability to utilize different strategies to protect their health. So especially with like the overlap of injection drug use, constant police pressure and like worrying about the police that has been shown a lot of times to lead to things like rushed injections, using drugs by yourself. So there's not someone there that if you do overdose, that they can administer Narcan, those sorts of things, like really highlighting the impact that a lot of this is happening, even though people think kind of what they're doing is harmless. And then number two, really just to help amplify the voice of the women. I mean, these women have lived incredibly complex lives. They've experienced significant hardship. And, you know, in talking to them, they were some of like the kindest and strong women that I had ever met. So and that's something too that like I've, I'm trying to incorporate in my work, like in seeing what my role is as a researcher, is that kind of using my privilege to amplify the voices of them because I think their stories like do deserve to be heard. And I think that in humanizing them too, it can lead to positive change that can protect them. Yeah. Cool. So before we get into the paper, I have one more question and I kind of will tie into the paper a little bit. Sure. I think this is a good place to ask it. So for the study, it said that to be eligible, you needed to be 15 or older. Mm -hmm. How much of your sample was under 18 and were they getting policed the same way that the older participants were? So we actually didn't have anyone that was under 18 Hmm. in it. So it actually, it never came up. Okay. So I don't know how Baltimore or just Maryland in general does it, but I know a couple of years back, California decriminalized underage prostitution. And, you know, there was this big hoopla of like, oh, you're making it legal for little kids to be prostitutes or whatever. But no, like the purpose of it was, so like these kids would then get, sent to services, not get arrested and put in jail. You uh, said they criminalized it? Or they decriminalized, decriminalized it. Decriminalized it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, they were no longer getting arrested and put in jail or getting police. The police would answer or find them, and then they would have to call like a social worker to okay. um, or, or child protective services would have to come in and take over instead of the police handling that case. Okay. I was just curious if, yeah, it didn't come up like in really in our work, but it definitely is a thing. And like we would like it didn't come up in terms of our data collection, but it's definitely something that came up in like when we were talking to different groups. Like one thing that came up with a lot of the outreach groups in the area was the idea that like anyone engaged in sex work that's under 18 is considered that they're being trafficked, which does create another like problematic dynamic in that. But again, it was not something that we experienced, but really just the conflation between human trafficking and then like sex work as work, like they're two very different things. But a lot of times I think people's like immediate reaction that aren't familiar 
with it is that like anyone involved in sex work is being trafficked, which in Baltimore was not the case, at least with our sample. Okay, so yeah, I guess we should start moving into your paper that we're going to talk about today. It's the barriers and facilitators to retaining a cohort of street-based cisgender female sex workers recruited in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. Results from the Sapphire study that was published this year in BMC Public Health with multiple colleagues from the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health at Department of Health, Behavior, and Society. Ooh, that is a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) And it was your first lead author paper, right? It was, yeah. 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 I had a lot of help, but yes, it was. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, thank you. And so this paper provides a detailed discussion of the follow-up strategies used to retain street-based gender female sex workers in a mobile setting versus just fixed locations and a post or web-based participation in Baltimore. You look at the demographic differences between those that sort of dropped out of the study or you weren't able to retain versus those that you were. And lastly, you, in your conclusion, you talk about some future direction, some promises that came out of the study, as well as some of the limitations of the study and sort of how this contributes to the broader literature. And I do have to say, I found this paper interesting because, as you know, David has that NIJ grant to evaluate the Denver Gang Reduction Mm -hmm. Initiative. And we just started doing our follow-up interviews. And so we were kind of running into a few of these speed bumps, if you will. And (laughs) yeah, there there were a few things that you guys talk about in here that I kind of want to talk to you about. And I do have a couple of questions on it. Sure. Just based on what seemed to work for you and the Sapphire team and that hasn't quite panned out for us here. Okay. And so, but we'll get into that in just a little bit. All right. So we are going to ask you to kind of hit us with the highlights, but before we do that, can you just give like a rundown of the follow-up strategies that you guys used to try and retain these interviews? Yeah. Yeah. So we used a whole mixed bag of strategies and it kind of evolved like throughout the study as we realized what was working, what wasn't, and then just thinking of different strategies that we could use. So we really used a multi-pronged approach, which I think helped us be so successful as well. But some of the things that we did, let's see, one, we had the mobile van that we used for data collection. So that was really like our anchor in terms of follow-up. And even after recruitment, like we would use that specifically for follow-up, doing about three to five, sometimes when we were really busy and there was a lot of follow-up overlapping, We would even be out six days a week in the van, just going to areas that we recruited people in hopes of random encounters, and then also to like scheduling different follow-ups. So we had the van as like our anchor. We had people using, like kind of manning the phones, making phone calls consistently, not just when the van was out, but even just during the week, letting people know, hey, the van's going to be out this day or this day, what works for you, and trying to get in touch with people. When we recruited people, we would do a whole contact sheet to really try to get as much information as we can to help us find them. Because a lot of them too would cycle through phones and phone numbers wouldn't be good anymore. They're just trying to kind of get as much of their network as we could, whether it was social media accounts, aunts, uncles, parents, friends, that sort of thing. We would do that. We would also hand out 
a ton of different, we called it swag, but we had hand sanitizer, wipes, chapstick. We would hand out Narcan and a lot of the stuff, not the Narcan, but a lot of the different swag that we handed out would have our study name and phone number on it. And a lot of people would come back and be like, oh yeah, like I lost my phone, but I ended up finding your chapstick in my purse that had your number on it. And then I was able to call. And then that number, you know, they could leave voicemails and stuff. It wasn't like they had to call at a specific time when the phone was up. So we actually like purchased a study phone for it. What else did we do? So yeah, we had social media outreach that we would do. We would only ever like, and we confirmed that people were okay with all of this before they enrolled, but we would only ever like message people on social media. We would never post on their wall or anything like that. But then we also had a study Facebook account. And then if people were interested, like we would ask them when they were enrolling, we would actually friend them because we found when we were doing the study that a lot of the messages would just go to a spam folder if we weren't actually friends with them. So they'd be like, I never got any of your messages. But then as soon as we became friends with them, then they could actually see the messages that were being done. So we had social media, phones, stable contacts, the van. We had, this was something that we ended up implementing a little bit farther into the study, but we called it like tracking teams where we would send teams of two out in a sedan. And that's how we would do a lot of the home visits and stuff. But then also to just spending time in different hotspots in hopes of getting random encounters. We got quite a few people literally just by like randomly encountering them on the street. And then it's like, oh, I think I might be eligible. And sure enough, we look them up and they were. But mainly the reason we ended up using a sedan was because driving a van through Baltimore. I mean, it was a 30 foot long RV. Like it was. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. So driving that all around the greater Baltimore area and even through like some of the smaller streets of Baltimore and trying to find parking, it was not ideal. I can say I've parallel parked a 30 foot RV in like rush hour traffic with no backup cameras. So that was probably my biggest highlight and accomplishment on the study, but. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. I can't even normally parallel park, so good for you. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't do it without a backup camera. (laughs) Oh, man. Cool. And if I remember correctly, you guys had monetary incentives, right? Yeah, yep. So yeah, that was like kind of built into the protocol that we had. So we would do, it was $70 for the baseline interview and then $45 for the three-month, six-month, and nine-month follow-up, and then $70 again at the 12-month interview. And we didn't hand out cash just from like a safety perspective for staff, given that we, I mean, we were out sometimes at like three or four o'clock in the morning. And then also too, just from like a QAQC perspective, documenting like all of that cash going in and out is a lot more difficult. We use prepaid Visa debit cards. And with that, you can track like the card numbers and then it's just a lot easier to maintain. Right. And so, Brett, why don't you go ahead and hit us with the highlights of your paper? So the main highlights are just like things that we learned that can really help people get a good follow-up rate and stay engaged with the populations on studies with vulnerable populations. And that being said, one of the main highlights that I learned was that it is a ton of work and a major Mm -hmm. undertaking. And it's something that you need to be extremely flexible with in part because just like the nature of the study, it's going to fluctuate. So like I said, we had months where we might have 85 to 90 people eligible at one time to do their interviews. And especially with our study, like we couldn't do phone. I mean, we 
ideally we wouldn't do phone interviews because we were doing HIV and STI testing as well. So it like we needed to physically find them to do the study. So that created like another dynamic. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was a lot of work. I never thought that I would become like a RV mechanic. Our generator broke all the time. RVs are not meant to drive around city streets. And then running a generator every day for five hours in a hundred degree heat or the winter, it definitely takes its toll on it. So I guess highlight number one is don't underestimate the different roles that you will have to take on as someone that is like kind of leading this follow-up effort. And then highlight number two would be our main takeaway was really that for more stable participants, we were able to find them on Facebook or through phone calls and could really schedule those follow-ups and then say, our van's going to be here next week. Can you come by on Monday when the van's parked in your neighborhood and do your interview? And then a lot of times people would be there waiting for us, or we might just have to call them to remind them when we got there. But normally those interviews were the easiest to do. And then for the people that were experiencing more vulnerability, so maybe they had higher rates of drug use, homelessness, they were cycling in and out of phones. That's where our approach of just like the more time that we spent in these neighborhoods is really what helped us get those numbers up. And I mean, a lot of people, they might have one day of eligibility left and we have been looking for them for two months. And then sure enough, they just like knock on the door of the van and they'll be like, oh, like I've been here like the whole time. And we just, you know, we didn't encounter them. And that, I mean, another thing with our study is Like a lot of studies that when I was reading, kind of building up the background literature of the paper and then also to coming up with our follow-up strategy, a lot of the articles that you read are studies that have a home base that is like a physical building location that people were coming to either for services or it was somewhere at the university where people knew that like that's where I can go to find these people. And I mean, Baltimore City, the public transportation system is not the best. So the idea that like some of our participants that were farther out would come into Hopkins trying to find us is like, it was not very likely. So that created another challenge that like we had recruited them off the street on a van, sometimes at three o'clock in the morning. So then, you know, finding them again, it was a little more difficult. Right. One of the things that you highlight in this paper is that, you know, retention strategies should be tailored to participant characteristics. And you've touched on this a little bit but can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly tailoring looked like in Sapphire? Because it sounded like you had a lot of participants. Yeah. So how difficult was it to sort of have to tailor to a lot of these participants to try to retain them? It was a little difficult in the beginning just because we were going through growing pains and trying to figure out like how much staffing do we need? And then to like, we had never really done this before as a team. So actually when we started all the baseline interviews, and I think up until like some of the three month interviews, we were doing everything on paper. Yeah. And there was no like Wi-Fi on the van. We didn't have a hotspot, anything like that. So we would do everything on the van and then we would bring it back into the office. It would get update. It would then get entered into an Excel sheet So we had to maintain constant communication between all of our staff because we had people going out every day, tracking teams that were going out late at night. So if someone did an interview Monday night, then Tuesday morning, like the people in the van needed to know this interview was done last night. We don't need to try to find that person. And we also don't need to redo their interview because they already did it. So that was one of the growing pains that we had. We eventually started using RedCap and then could have like a whole system that we could literally go in the van and click and see 
who is eligible in this zone or this area today and how much time do they have left. But then to just kind of like what we found to work after we figured it out was really just looking at the demographic characteristics of our sample and the people that were eligible. So once we kind of figured out through our team meetings and stuff that I talk about in the paper, how our trackers were finding different participants. And we realized that for a lot of people, it was just random encounters. And the more time that we spent in that area, then that's going to be our best chance of getting it versus people we knew that we could call. So really just kind of constantly looking at the sample that you have to see how much contact information do I have on these people? What is the contact history with them? So if I see that I've tried to call this person every day for a month and none of the numbers work, their aunt hasn't talked to them in forever. Like it's not worth it to, to keep trying that. Especially too, you don't want to burn out the contacts that you do have, you know, if you keep like repeatedly calling them. So yeah, basically just that's probably my biggest advice is constantly looking at the demographics of your sample to see what it's made up of and then knowing which strategies work for those different types of Yeah, definitely. I know that's one of the things that we've kind of run into where some of our collateral contacts aren't terribly fond of our research team right now. Mm -hmm. And a couple of them have let us know in flowery language how much they like us calling a couple (laughs) of times a week. I've definitely been there for sure. And it helps too. Like it depends on the staff that you have in terms of like everyone's availability. But like we would try a lot of times like with the different trackers that we have to reassign the participants like when they'd come up eligible for their next interview, try to put them with the same person that did their last interview. Because at that point, like, you know, I had built a relationship with their stable contacts. I'd been to their house before their parents or their aunts or uncles know who I am. And it's not just another random person knocking on the door. Yeah, it's funny you say that. So a few days ago, we had a call with Megan Mitchell, who's a professor in Central Florida. And she was one of the main people in the Lone Star Project that we were talking to her, trying to get some tips and tricks for retention. And she's pretty much said the same thing. She's like, if you can have the same person contact the participant, because that familiarity might ease them into being more willing to participate. For sure. So yeah, I think that is a good her her good paper was that paper was amazing. Yeah. I thought we collected a lot of data, but then I read that one and I was like, wow. So that goes to show to I me, mean, even like, like I said, I thought we collected a bunch, but like there is always more that you can collect. We started now with the next study that I worked on after that. I don't work on it anymore, but we then started implementing, like we would document specifically how we found the person when we did their follow-up interview. We would also document the amount of hours, like every time a tracker went out, they would record like how many hours they were out, how many hours the van was out. And we'd look to see like, how many interviews are we getting on the van? How many are we getting while tracking? And yeah, like I've said, it's a major undertaking. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, again, I found this super interesting, just comparing and contrasting your project and your data collection with what we're doing right now with Grid and your social media approach. How successful were you with using social media? Because we've tried to take that route. And I mean, we haven't pushed it too hard. Uh Whenever we do try, we haven't been very successful. Actually, I think we're batting a complete zero right now with social media. Yeah. And then I know the Lone Star Project also didn't have much success with social media. But it sounds like you guys were fairly successful with it. 
Yeah, I'm surprised actually that you haven't. And even reading the Lone Star paper when I saw that, I was surprised that that was a key difference between our study and your study. Because what I like about social media is that if you're texting someone, and like a lot of people would have prepaid phones. So if they lost their phone, all of that contact history was gone. Mm -hmm. But we had a lot of participants that they might go to the library or go to like a fast food restaurant to get Wi-Fi or people just having Facebook themselves. But like, even if they check their social media two months later, they can see the message that we left them and then pick right back up where they left off. So I don't have like a specific number. And that's something that I wish that we had documented more. And it's something that we did document in the next study, but that one's still finishing up. But it it definitely like anecdotally from the team meetings that we had and like even from the follow-ups that I was doing, social media definitely played a key role. And with social media, but even everything, like I think one of the key things that I found with our study is that like, even if every strategy that you use has a low success rate, like in tandem by doing all of them, like cumulative, it's going to increase the rate. Right. So I don't believe, and I was like tangentially related to the social media efforts with Lone Star, but what you mentioned earlier, as far as actually adding people as a friend Mm -hmm. or a follower, I think that was a major issue with Lone Star was that we were sending messages, but none of them were really going through or being read because they were just getting kind of filtered you exactly. know, out of their view. So I'm wondering if maybe that's a good strategy that you guys had that actually really benefited you. And we yeah, actually had, it was a participant that told us that, that like we didn't even realize it was happening because yeah. we kind of, I think had the same thing where we're like, why is no one responding to any of our messages or even mm-hmm. seeing them? And then sure enough, that was why. Actually, now that after I read your paper, my reaction was like, Facebook has a spam folder. (laughs) Yeah. I I guess that's why people aren't answering. But then the other issue that we're having that I think you guys had much better luck in was actually getting people's social media. And Uh I don't know if it's because we're dealing with a lot of juvenile gang members and a lot of them are pretty reluctant into giving us their Facebook Instagram, or their Snapchat. From what I've heard, they're reluctant to give it to their outreach workers that are supposed Mm -hmm. to be, you know, like their mentors. Eventually it sounds like they do, but it it takes a while. So I think that that's part of our issue too. Like we don't, we can't actually get them to give it to us in the first place. Yeah. We had like entire trainings around really like describing the study and the efforts that we do that we use to protect people's confidentiality and even like going about getting people's social media, just emphasizing that like, we're not going to communicate with them on our personal Facebooks. Like it was always done through our study account. Everything was done with direct messaging, never posting on anyone's wall. And then we also had a certificate of confidentiality from the NIH And that was something that we could inform people that like, if anyone came and was like, we wanted to see this information, like we legally don't have to give it up. All right. So this next question is based off of something that you've texted me about, Brad, and could totally turn into some shameless self-promotion, but we'll see where the question goes. Uh Uh-oh. So your sample, relatively high rates of incarceration, which hindered your follow-ups. And you've also mentioned via text messages that you believe, or you and your research team, believe that a decent proportion or percentage of your sample was deceased throughout and therefore that obviously would hinder follow-ups. 
Could you describe what efforts you took in identifying whether or not people were deceased and the challenges associated with doing that? Mm -hmm. And this is when I I texted you, like, your paper helped a whole lot. I can't remember the specific name of the database. If you want to plug it, you can. (laughs) No, it's okay. This is about you. (laughs) This is the Uh, National Death Index? Yeah, that is something that I wish that we had used. Ours was... I mean, really all of the method, like when I say like the methods of how we got people, that was all done anecdotally through team meetings and talking to people that were doing the follow-ups. We didn't specifically document how we found them, which again is something I said that we're doing now and something I wish we did from the beginning. But then also in terms of participants that passed away, we would do that. Like if I called a stable contact asking trying like if they had seen the participant and that they were eligible for follow-up, a lot of times we would learn through family members, friends. And then even to just like through the time that we would spend in the neighborhood, you get to know a lot of these participants and you definitely have some of the favorites that come by every time the van is parked there, which we encouraged too. It was a safe place for them to come. A lot of times like in bad weather, the van was warm, it was dry. People would just come on to get sodas, candy, the different swag that we had talked about. And through building that rapport, a lot of times they would volunteer information about different participants, knowing that like they had come to the van together before. So really, everything that we learned was through either other stable contacts or participants. And then if we got word of that, like we would always try to verify it more. So we would look online. Sometimes like there would be information about like funeral proceedings and those sorts of things. But we didn't use any like specific database, which now I wish we did. And something that I think we will do, because especially in Baltimore with like fentanyl has really infiltrated the drug market. There, so there's very high rates of overdose, and people are probably moving around because I know you primarily looked at like city corners or called city-based individuals, yeah. right? Yeah, that was the only place that we called. We didn't do anything in the county. Sometimes, and this is something I forgot to mention for our retention strategy. Every state is different, but Maryland has you can just log right on any like criminal proceedings are public information. So we would search participants' names to see if they were incarcerated. That was kind of like always like we kind of had like a preemptive checklist before we would start following up with people because you don't want to waste a bunch of effort trying to find someone if you see that unfortunately they were incarcerated. And then you can document when they're supposed to be released so that you know to pick back up and try to follow up with them then. And then sometimes if they had like an outstanding case or something and then they did pass away, it would show up on that database there. So we learned that way as well. But every state's different. Like, I think some you have to pay for that. So I'm not too sure. And then, like, we didn't require IDs or anything on our study. So it was just names that people had given us. And then we might enter the name wrong by, like, a letter or something. Maybe they write down Bradford instead of Bradley. (laughs) So we used to search different, you know, like, my name is Bradley. I might search Brad or just, like, part of the last name. And then you'll end up finding, you can find different people that way, but it's definitely state specific. So one of the other things that you talk about, and this is in in your discussion section, that when I got to this part, I was very intrigued to say the least. So one of the things you mentioned for the grid project, we very briefly mentioned this idea was giving participants bonds or prepaid minutes mm-hmm. to contact them. And so that's Have you done what, it? No. Like the idea was tossed out and then scrapped almost immediately <laughs> just because, especially since we are dealing with juveniles, we 
we deemed it too high risk and unreliable to just be giving them a burner phone. Sure. Around. And then we were pretty much betting that if we gave them prepaid minutes, they wouldn't save those minutes to the actual study. For sure. But then the other thing, and this one like really sort of blew my mind, was the safe drug kits, like safe injection uh-huh. and safe smoking. Is that something that you guys discuss doing? I just, yeah, I'm just so- thinking about it and like, I don't even know if like the IRB would allow something like that. Like, Yeah. So we have like the study that this led into, I feel like my team loves dual acronyms. So we had Sapphire and now this study was called the Emerald Project, <laughs> but it actually led to like, based on the findings that we found, it led to an actual drop-in center that we opened that really tries to address some of these structural vulnerabilities. And it's a whole community level intervention that we're testing. It's, People can come in, just watch TV, sit on the couch, get sodas, that sort of thing. But then also there is medicated assisted treatment. There's a health provider that comes. There's legal aid, all sorts of things. And then they do mobile outreach, going around to different areas, handing out Narcan, safe injection kits, safe smoking kits. So the, the safe injection kits will have like clean water, a cooker, cotton, Narcan, alcohol swabs, that sort of thing. And there's a whole lot of like... One thing that I loved about my job at Hopkins was I got introduced to like some amazing organizations that are like this whole public health outreach world that I knew nothing about. There's places like Be More Power, the Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition, HIPS in Washington, D.C. does a lot with sex workers as well. And that's really where like we went around and talked to a lot of these people and kind of learned how they go about doing outreach for that sort of thing. And then just kind of stole their models in terms of like, like, I mean, they helped us with the kits. They showed us where to order them, that sort of thing. But it's definitely, I mean, it's something that we discussed, but it's also something that like has already been being done in Baltimore. Baltimore has like an amazing harm reduction scene. So I'm not too familiar with Denver, but you might want to, it seems like every city has a harm reduction coalition. And then, I mean, I don't know specifically what you would hand out, but I'm sure there's organizations working there that would know like what the needs are. And then, like, it's a good, like, it gets, one, it builds rapport, two, I mean, it gives them some power back and lets them practice, like, safe injection behaviors and stuff. But then also, too, it gives them a reason to come back to the van, even if they're not eligible for an interview. And that's something that we really tried to stress with our study, with making that van, like, a place for people to come by, regardless of whether they're, it was time for their interview or not. Which, that's really neat, because not only is it beneficial to them, but also it kind of builds rapport between mm-hmm. your team and your participants as well. Exactly. Yep. Important. So Jose and I were like blown away by this. Like, and maybe I'm curious if that's because, you know, we're from criminology and sociology departments versus more of like a public health department. Sure. And so, Cause we were just like, would IRB even let us do that? You know, we're not like trained in any of this stuff. And so uh-huh. do you think that those kinds of issues were mitigated by the fact of what department you were in or the research was in? Probably. Yes. Because like so many people had been doing it before and like we were able to say like, there's all these other organizations already doing this. And then, but also too, the laws vary state by state. So even like for a long time, it was even illegal to hand out Narcan. And I like I went to a harm reduction conference in New Orleans and learned like all of, like I learned all about the history of that and like how much work people have put in 
to make that like a thing. And now you hear about cops all getting like, they, they have Narcan when they go out and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to see how long like all of this has been going on. But I think step one would be look at the state that you're in, what the laws are, and then to figure out who's doing what. And then if you can learn from them about like how they're doing it. And I think as long as you make the case that what you're doing isn't illegal and there's people doing it, like it should be fine. The other thing that we started handing out, I think I, I can't remember if I mentioned in the paper or not, because I can't remember when we started doing it, but drug checking strips. This was another thing that like blew my mind when I learned about it, but they have these little test strips that you're supposed to do like a urinalysis with it and they can test to see if there's fentanyl. And then what people like in the harm reduction world started realizing that you could do is actually test drugs before you use them to see if fentanyl is in the drug supply. So like you've probably heard about like dance safe and stuff at like different music festivals where people will do that with ecstasy and stuff. But it's, I mean, the same process. So that's another thing that we started handing out. But that's another thing that's state by state. And then like in some states, it's classified as paraphernalia. So you really have to see what laws are. And people did a lot of work in Maryland to get that listed as something that is not paraphernalia. That is wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you have anything else you want to talk about as far as the paper goes? The only other thing I wanted to add, and I forgot to add in the beginning when I talked about the strategy that we used, this was like the most important thing that we did. So I'm mad I didn't didn't say it, is that really our biggest strength was the team that we had. We had like constantly a team of 10 to 15 staff members from people like from all. So I was a full-time employee. At that point, we had a couple other full-time employees And then we had graduate students, master's students. I didn't really have any public health background leading into this, but then we had people through, they had like worked with my supervisors on other studies, but people that worked as disease intervention specialists for the health department. So their job was to track down people, like similar to like we were doing contact tracing with coronavirus, the same type of thing for HIV and STIs. So these people, like collectively, we had like decades of experience in Baltimore City with all sorts of backgrounds. And then those people were like, and they're used to doing home visits, that sort of thing. They know the neighborhoods, they know the people in them. So that was a big strength that we had. Cool. All right. So let's kind of switch now and talk about some of your more recent research that you're doing. So we know that you're transitioning or are now switching from more sex work to more policing and defund or both at the same time. I guess I'm not sure. But (laughs) so you're doing research on depolicing and the Ferguson effect. So can you, I know you've mentioned it to me and Jose, but can you just describe the current project you're working on and... Yeah. what your goals with it well, are. I got to backtrack first. I forgot <laughs> to mention that at one point we actually had the health department called us. So the health department would do all of our testing. We would collect the samples, send it to them, and then they would run the tests. And then we would try to notify people. And then like, especially if they came back for an interview, we would tell them. But like I said, with the disease intervention specialist, like the city still had its own arm of people trying to notify. So like I really got to know the different DIS officers And they'd call, have you been in touch with this person? Did you notify them? So we would kind of work together sometimes. But the health department actually set up a meeting with us because we became their number one outside testing organization. Uh, Maybe not number one. We were like in the top like three testing organization of people that they then couldn't find. So in terms of like cases that they were getting that they were not able to find the people, we were like in the top group. So they met with us just to find out like one more so what we were doing. And then two, they even started like 
getting interested in some of the strategies that we were using because in the same way that we're trying to track them for the interviews, there's a big overlap with HIV and STIs. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, that was pretty mind blowing to get called yeah. into, that, into that meeting. That's really cool. Anyway, all right, now we can jump forward. <laughs> <laughs> so are you still doing research on sex work or are you now kind of more transitioning completely to police? This summer, I'm doing a coronavirus study. Okay. That just kind of popped up, obviously, with everything going on. So it's just more geared towards people who use drugs as a whole. But it's a phone survey. And then it's we're partnering with like seven different states, organizations in those states where like the different harm reduction organizations I was telling you about and service providers, they're going to refer their clientele to us to do a phone survey. So I'm doing that. And then really my plan after that is to kind of wrap up my work that I, I, cause all these projects, like, as you learn, they take so like, they're mm-hmm. like, that was one thing that I definitely had to learn is that it's not just like, Oh, I'll do this study for like four months. Like these, especially ones where you're collecting the data, like they go on for years. Yeah. So I feel like I'm trying to wrap up the work that I've been doing with that. And then really we'll focus on ideally, like when I get into my own research, I want to continue this whole like police culture thing. Like I said, in the public health world, you always hear about the police and the impact that they have. And people talk about developing interventions and all sorts of things. But I think that there's a disconnect between the sociology research that's been going on and then the public health world. So trying to bridge that gap is where I would like to position myself. Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. They're definitely connected. That was a great conversation with you, Brad. Thank you very much. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Is there Thanks anything you'd me. like to plug? I mean, we just talked about your hopefully soon to be published paper, but <laughs> is there anything else you're working on that we should be on the lookout for? Nothing right now. Well, you mentioned that there was another paper that just came out about the Sapphire Project, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that one, it's in BMC, International Health and Human Rights. I think it came out maybe like a month ago. But yeah, it's a open access journal too. So if you just Google the Sapphire study, let me Maybe I should pull up the name of it. Give me one second. <laughs> While you do that, where can people find you? Twitter, Google Scholar, ResearchGate? I think yeah. I have a ResearchGate, but I don't know any of my login information. Really, it would be email. Email and Twitter are probably the two best things. My email is just my full name, Bradley Silverson at utexas.edu. And then my Twitter is just Brad Silverson. So the paper that was just published with the ride-along data is an ethnographic exploration of factors that drive policing of street-based female sex workers in a U.S. setting, identifying opportunities for intervention. Awesome. We'll have to give that one a read too. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Brad. We really enjoyed having you and maybe someday you'll come back. (laughs) Come back to me. I hope so. (laughs) We're on the podcast. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Brad.